Are you tired of tribalism? I think a lot of what the left supports is satanic. The only time religious freedom is invoked is in the name of bigotry and discrimination. Are you exhausted by the culture war? If they don't like it here, they can leave. You could put half of Trump supporters into what I call the basket of deplorables. Are you suspicious of those who say Jesus endorses their political party? Is it possible to be a good Christian and also be a member of the Republican Party? And the answer is absolutely not. From certainly a biblical standpoint, Christians could not vote Democratic. We trust the Lamb, not the donkey or the elephant. This is the podcast that's too liberal for conservatives and too conservative for liberals. I'm Patrick Miller. And I'm Keith Simon. And we choose truth over tribe. Do you? Everyone, welcome to 2024. We are a few weeks in, which means you've already given up on all of your resolutions, just like Keith. Sorry, Keith, it's been a bad year, hasn't it? I just don't make resolutions. That way I can't fail. <laughs> that, that's what I told my wife the other day. She goes, why don't you make any resolutions? Then I never have to fail. But perhaps more importantly, we are finally entering the joys of a presidential election year. In fact, just a few days ago were the Iowa caucuses, and in a few days, it's going to be the New Hampshire primaries. And as much as all of us would like to fast forward this year, we don't really get that choice. We have to live through it once again. Aren't you talking to people and everybody just has this sense of dread over what's coming? You know? I do. It's just like this big cloud hanging over country. And the weird thing about it is as much as everybody hates it, doesn't seem like we can change it. Like you would think if you saw yourself driving toward a cliff, you would like swerve, change directions, stop maybe. But no, we all know there's this big cliff and we're just going full steam ahead. We're going to go right <laughs> off of it, maybe. Okay. What you're not saying is that we shouldn't hold primaries and caucuses and all that. What you're saying is we all know what elections can do to our hearts and souls, how they can make us treat people who are in the other party on the other side, how it can make us start warring with one another. We know it, and that's why we hate it. We know what will happen in our families. We know what will happen in our churches. And yet it seems like no one is willing, like you said, to pump the brakes and stop. Well, we could just go on and on about this because I'm sure you've seen the polls that say that most Americans don't want either of the two likely candidates. I mean, <laughs> It looks like it's probably going to be Trump and Biden, and nobody wants that. It's like, is there another choice? Is there another alternative? Now, my point isn't that one guy's good or one guy's bad. My point is that we just live in a day where we feel constrained by circumstances that we can't escape, even if we don't like them. And now everybody's dreading what's coming because we know how they're going to attack each other and accuse each other. And then we know that it's going to lead to more tribalism and it's going to lead to more division in families and friend groups and churches and it's just so tired. Yeah, yeah, it is tired. And it's going to affect our tribe, evangelicals. And in fact, it already is. We've seen this happen in 2016. We've seen it happen in 2020. There is a large-scale fracturing happening where center-left and center-right, and of course you've got people who are far-right and far-left as well, inside of the evangelical movement are already revving up, and they're already beginning the critiques of the other side, claiming that the other side is the problem that is facing not just Christianity, but also America, and sometimes it seems like America is the bigger deal to people. And so that's what we want to talk about this episode is there have been a number of tweets, articles that are beginning this perennial fight, and we just want to make some observations about them and ask the question, is this really worth it? Is this really how we want to spend 2024? 
things started to pick up steam when there was a trailer released for a documentary on Christian nationalism. Several of the people involved in that film are people we've had on the show and talked to. People like Phil Vischer, Russell Moore, David French, Christian Kovitz demay maybe others as well. Those are just ones that I'm aware of. So these are people that we like, we respect, and we feel like they have something to contribute to the conversation, and they decided to be in this documentary. Now, it turns out that Rob Reiner is the... I executive producer or something like that. And he is very clear that he's not a Christian, doesn't think highly of Christians. And so here you have these Christian thought leaders that I already just mentioned, and they are participating in a documentary against Christian nationalism sponsored by an atheist or executive producer is an atheist who doesn't like Christianity. And so then all of a sudden you have another group of Christians who begin to attack them, who say, hey, look, you shouldn't be in this documentary because here you are being a pawn in this atheist game. He's using you to kind of diminish or demean, belittle Christians in general. And then the first group, the David French's and the Russell Moore's, they came back and they said, whoa, hang on a second now. We didn't even know that Rob Reiner was going to be involved in this when we said yes and we filmed our parts. And secondly, Christian nationalism isn't Christianity. So we're not turning our guns against Christianity. We're turning our guns against against a distortion of Christianity that's both harmful to the nation and to the church. Well, this went back and forth and back and forth, and it's kind of exhausting. (laughs) It is exhausting. And like he said, I agree. Christian nationalism is a threat to orthodoxy inside of evangelicalism. I don't know that I buy into the idea that it is the greatest threat to American democracy that's ever existed, but we'll get into that in just a moment. Well, hang on. Can I just say that one thing is that I think right before everybody became aware of this documentary coming out is that James Carville, Clinton's former advisor, had been on Bill Maher's show, and he said there that Christian Christian nationalism was the biggest threat to our country. And he said this, more than Al-Qaeda is a threat, Christian nationalism a threat. So everybody's thinking, is this the thing that's going to tear apart our country? And then you come out with this trailer in this film, and everybody started hyping this up like, oh my gosh, this is it. This is the thing. Well, and it's not just that trailer. There have been a long list of books released recently that are playing on the same theme. Russell Moore's recent book, we interviewed him about that. Tim Alberta's recent book, also we have an interview with him about that. Caitlin Chess's book. There have been a number of books that are saying that Christian nationalism is a major threat to democracy in America. And again, we are interviewing these people because we think that there is a truth in that. I don't know that we would agree that it's the problem, but this has led other voices to say, hey, what are you guys doing? In your publications, in your books, in your podcasts, you are constantly giving a haymaker to the right while cuddling and coddling the left. There was a viral tweet by a friend of mine, Josh Howerton, who wrote, I'll just read the beginning, large platform evangelicalism, so he's talking about some of the people we just mentioned, got covertly hijacked by secular progressivism. Many aren't yet understanding what's happening and, as a result, are attacking the opposite net problem we are facing. He goes on to argue what I just said, that organizations like Christianity Today are punching right and coddling left. And if you look at their publication, he says that anything that codes left is good and anything that codes right is bad. And as an example of that, he shows a headline from a piece called Barbie and Taylor Swift are bringing us together. So that codes left. We can be for it. And then he points out that the only article released about Oliver Anthony's hit song, Rich Men North of Richmond, which we did a podcast on, this is the headline. Oliver Anthony's viral hit doesn't love its neighbors. Now, where are those headlines? Are those in Christianity Today? These are Christianity Today headlines. Okay. And you said you're friends with Josh Howerton. So tell us, everybody, just a little bit about who he is, because what I've noticed is that he kind of got into this. He's new into it. In other words, he didn't, at least as 
far as I know, really weighed into politics and culture, that kind of stuff. He was just a pastor doing his thing. And recently, it seems like he made a shift. Is that true? I don't want to speak for Josh or be on my own knowledge. I know that Josh is very much like us. He's a Kellerite. He's been very much so in a similar camp to us in general. I'm pretty sure he listens to the podcast and engages with it. But that said, over the last year, in fact, I think partially starting, maybe not starting, with a tweet that I did a year ago critiquing Christianity Today, he's become increasingly frustrated and aware of this problem that it seems to be okay in certain quote-unquote centrist circles to, again, punch right and coddle left. And one thing I like about Josh and the way that he handled that online is that he was very careful to say, I'm not impugning anyone's motives. I'm not attacking anyone. I'm just trying to make some observations as a pastor of a church. Where's this church? Texas. In Texas. So it's a fairly large church, I think. Maybe very large. And I'm just trying to make some observations about what I'm seeing because I think the landscape, the cultural landscape, the political landscape has changed and maybe people aren't aware of it. Well, and I think one of his concerns is that he's looking at the way progressivism has hijacked so many of our cultural institutions, currently has the White House. It has a huge place in capitalism and large businesses. It's obviously the main political position of people in Hollywood and major journalistic publications. And so he's saying this is a threat to younger generations, it's a threat to older generations, what progressivism is doing to our culture. And if we can't critique Babylon, if it codes left, that means it's good. If we can't critique that Babylon, we have a major problem for the future of the church. And I think that's what's concerning him as a pastor is that, okay, let's talk about the right and let's critique the right. Sure. But we have to be able to say something to the left as well. So, okay. I think that's really good. He's saying we should be able to critique both right and left, but because of the way Christians have operated the last several years. Christians have decided to, he would say, coddle left, embrace the left, because that way shows that we're not right-wing Republicans. All Christians aren't right-wing Republicans. And so trying to make room for the gospel by saying, hey, we respect the left's position on race or poverty or whatever else, we've ended up putting ourselves in a position where we can't critique the left. So now we're just critiquing the right, but that opens up the church to some, you know, dangers. Yeah, it does. And let's move forward to another article making a similar argument by Andrew Walker in the National Review. And just like Russell Moore et al. say, the problem facing America and the church is Christian nationalism, and that's what we need to talk about, Andrew Walker is kind of making a counter-argument saying, actually, the issue is progressivism, and the big problem we have in evangelicalism are evangelicals who are critiquing other evangelicals. Can I read a little paragraph here from his article in the National Review? Here's what Andrew Walker wrote. If anyone has followed along for the past two or three years, self-identified evangelicals with elite media platforms as such places as The Atlantic, Yahoo, The Washington Post, The New York Times, and even evangelical outlets have a ceaseless fixation on criticizing evangelicals, especially white evangelicals. Think of such writers as David French, Pete Weiner, and Tim Alberta, or evangelical thought leaders who participate in documentaries about Christian nationalism produced by fabulously rich and progressive celebrities. The same column and the same argument are on repeat. So Walker is making the argument that there is a subset of evangelicals who are saying the exact same thing over and over and over again, in part because they want access to some of these elite media platforms. His critiques of these evangelicals are numerous, including the fact that he thinks they straw man other evangelicals. He points out that the vast majority of evangelicals he knows are not raving Christian nationalists wearing their MAGA hats. They're everyday, ordinary people who are serving at the local food bank, who are loving single moms, who are caring for 
for refugees in their communities. He says this is not a representation of what actual evangelicals are like. And just because they don't broadcast their good works doesn't mean that they aren't happening. And if you yourself are an evangelical, you have to know that they're happening. Yeah, and he says, look, they represent themselves as I'm the anti-evangelical evangelical. And they do that in order, at least this is what Andrew Walker's saying, they do that in order to curry favor of the elite. You know, places like The Atlantic, The New York Times, the Rob Reiner documentaries. And that really rubs a lot of people the wrong way. There was an article in The New York Times by David Brooks, I guess it was really a column back in February 4th of 2022, and it said, can these evangelicals save their movement? And he highlighted people like Russell Moore, David French, Pete Wainer, a lot of the same people, Karen Swallow Pryor, a lot of the same people that Andrew Walker is mentioning. And so the whole idea is, look, here's the New York Times. Here's a person that's not a Christian saying, look, these are the saviors of the evangelical movement. And so the idea is, do they sell out evangelicals in order to advance their own career? Yeah. And, you know, personally, I'm not quite as convinced by ad hominem arguments that this is about currying elite favor. Now, certainly you can see the narrative. It's not completely made up, but I just find myself doubting that that is really what's motivating many of these fantastic people. Andrew Walker's other major critique, though, is that they're letting non-Christians function as arbiters of Christian faithfulness. Again, this is a quote. He says, according to them, so the people we just mentioned, the evangelical church is its own worst enemy, we're told, and it's bleeding individuals because secularists and Christians alike are convinced that the evangelical church does not really believe in its own confession. It seems odd to put non-Christians in the position of judging what is or is not authentic Christianity. Yeah, I don't know that that's exactly what they're doing. I know we're just kind of trying to represent Andrew Walker here and his point, so we can get into that a little bit later. But I think what they're trying to do is say that if the evangelical church doesn't get its act together inside its own house, that we're going to lose our witness to the world that we're going to end up being reason for people to walk away from God. And that has a biblical precedent, right? Yeah, yeah, it absolutely does. I mean, Paul, speaking to the Jewish people, says God's name, this is Romans 2.19, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. His point is your manner of life, your way of living has caused God's name to be shamed and discredited amongst the Gentiles. And if that was possible for the Jewish people, of course, it is implicitly possible for Christians as well to blaspheme God's name by our poor behavior. One more thing that I'm curious what you think about, Patrick, is that there's a guy named Aaron Wren who wrote an article on his Substack in which he was saying that where you publish really matters. So to critique evangelicals in a magazine, say like The Atlantic or The New York Times, a secular publication is more wrong or more harmful than, say, doing the same thing with inside an evangelical publication. Yeah. Do you buy that or not? I actually think it's a rather helpful point. To use a more everyday example, if I have a problem with my wife, it would be far better for me to talk with her about that. And maybe if it was a big problem, we had to bring friends and family and other people get involved, it would be far better to do that inside the house than it would for me to go on Twitter or to some other woman and start complaining about the problem. Now, I'm not saying these are exactly the same thing, but people will say in responses and say, no, you know, judgment starts with the house of God. We're critiquing evangelicals. We'll do whatever we want to. But what I want to point out is that that judgment, that prophetic judgment, whether it was Amos or Zechariah or Isaiah or Ezekiel, whoever the prophet was, their oracles, their prophecies were given not just about the house of God, but inside the house of God. And so when you go outside, it would be like Amos going to Syria and saying, hey, I'm going to critique Israel over here. Well, 
that's not really helping Israel. You're just going to their national enemies and giving them more fodder. So I think there's a point that I can agree with. Yeah, okay, I get that Amos part. That sounded reasonable to me, but- in You didn't our, like my wife one. That was a little <laughs> odd. But in the media environment we live in, where everybody's reading everything from all kinds of different sources- How aware are people? Well- yeah, how aware people, how big of a deal does it matter where it's published when we're all going to read it anyway, if it's worthy to be passed around, we're all going to see it. Does it matter who published it? I don't know. Maybe it does. Maybe it doesn't. Okay, so big picture. We're having this war between two sides, one that says that the problem in evangelicalism is Christian nationalism, which we would agree that is a serious problem. We've got another group that says, no, the problem with evangelicalism is that we're punching right and coddling left. And by the way, I agree that that is a problem. I don't know if it's the problem. But after the article came out from Andrew Walker and the tweet from Josh Howerton, there were responses from the Russell Moore side. Mike Cosper, who works under Russell Moore at Christianity Today, took issue at Josh Howerton's post, and he said— no shocker, that Josh's position doesn't acknowledge what's really driving people to become so critical of evangelicals. And what does he say it is? Well, it's not a shock at this point. Trump and church abuse. So he's saying, look, you've missed the main issue. And he said that if evangelicals weren't willing to make a bed with a thrice-divorced man who bragged about his ability to take advantage of women sexually, who paid hush money to a porn star and made xenophobia part of his campaign strategy, he said, if that hadn't happened, then maybe your post makes sense, Josh. But that has happened, and so your post doesn't make sense. So I don't get the Cosper critique. So he's saying that because evangelicals voted in large numbers for Donald Trump, that means then we have to coddle left. This is the funny part. I don't think he's trying to say that you should coddle left. He's just justifying, this is why we punch right, and this is why punching right is more important than coddling left. We need to punch right. So again, I'm just trying to understand it. We need to punch right because Christians went in for this Trump guy, and he's a horrible person, and so we've got to beat them up to bring them to their senses that you can't support Donald Trump. And if you do, we're just going to keep beating you over the head with it. Yep. He's not dealing with the question of why it's okay to coddle the left. He's simply saying the main thing, the problem is the fact that Christians are in bed with Trump. What we're trying to describe here is right. these arguments are so tired. They just get repeated over and over. Let's talk about Russell Moore's response. Yeah. So then Russell Moore put out an email he does, a weekly email. I subscribe to it. I think it's called More to the Point, a playoff of his name. And he doesn't really mention Andrew Walker. At least I don't remember him mentioning him explicitly. But you can tell he's kind of responding to Andrew Walker. And I think Josh Howardson a little bit. Yeah, I did Josh too. So here's what he says. Which is worse in scripture, the pagan idols of the nations around Israel or the golden calves that Jeroboam placed at Bethel and Dan? So you can see what he's doing. He's saying, is it a bigger deal in the Bible that the nations are idolatrous or that there's idolatry inside of Israel? He goes on. He says, theologically, Jesus had far more in common with the scribes and the Pharisees than with the tax collectors or even the Sadducees. His harshest denunciations, though, are directed toward the Pharisees. Why? It is precisely because these religious leaders sit in Moses' seat. As Jesus' brother would later write, those who claim the teaching authority of the church will be judged more strictly. So you can say, hey, look, these people who are inside the church, they fall under a stricter judgment. They sit in Moses' seat. They sit in leadership positions within the church. He goes on, in the big scheme of world politics, which matters more, an entire empire given over to sexual and cultural immorality, as well as the worship of a whole pantheon of false gods, or one tiny gathering of Christians in a seaport town ignoring their own members' misbehavior? The Apostle Paul wrote that it was the latter. 
So what matters most is what's happening, say, in Corinth and the immorality there. That's what Paul focuses on. He doesn't focus on all the idolatry and misbehavior happening in the world. And so that he concludes with this, with all the persecutions facing the church, why didn't Paul just punch pagan? It's a good line. <laughs> yeah, it's a pretty entertaining, I'm going to be honest. Yeah, you're hearing justification. Look, judgment starts with the house of God. And judgment is stricter inside the house of God. And God calls us to judge one another, according to Russell Moore, more than he calls us to judge the world. Now, there are some easy pushbacks here. Tim Alberta, when I was talking to him, and I don't know exactly when that's coming out, but soon, he talked about how, hey, look, in the New Testament, what does Paul do? He exposes the sin inside the church, whether it's Corinth, and many sins they have there from division to immorality, all kinds of stuff, but it's in Philippians, it's in Galatians. He exposes the ethnic tensions, the arguments among leaders, all that kind of stuff. What Paul does is he doesn't hide that and say, look, this is going to be really embarrassing to the church. Let's don't talk about it. He focuses right on it and calls attention to it. And then also you have something like Daniel say in Daniel 9, when Daniel starts confessing sins, he confesses Israel's sins, not Babylon's sins. I mean, it's pretty amazing because he worked in Babylon. He worked in Persia. He worked in all these empires. So he knew Babylon sins. He knew Persian sins. And he doesn't mention them. It's not because he doesn't think they're sinful. It's just that he doesn't think it's as big a deal. He starts confessing Israel's sin. And so I think there's a point to be made there, right? You have to respect that. Yeah, I agree. And one of the things you're going to find from Keith and I is that we keep saying we agree with both sides. <laughs> That's my problem in life. And I can see both sides. Well, but I think you're spot on. There is a precedent a strong precedent for the call to issue judgment inside of the church, to critique our own sins more harshly than we critique the sins of outsiders. And anyone who says that now is not the time to do that, or that Christians should not ever do that, is going to run up against Scripture. But remember the opposite critique. They're saying, okay, great, you're willing to critique the sins of the church, but you will not critique the sins of Babylon. And now, to your point, just look at the Bible. Yes, maybe Paul didn't punch pagan, but have you read the book of Revelation? You get the first three chapters, we're talking about sins in the church. The rest of the book, man, you are punching hard against Babylon and what's on the outside. Or we can go to the ancient prophets, Isaiah 13 and 23, 10 consecutive chapters of critiques against outside nations. Or Jeremiah, who spends the end of his book going hard against Egypt and Babylon. So, we have both, right? We have Daniel confessing the sins of Babylon. We also have him confronting Nebuchadnezzar and saying that one day these nations, which are imaged as monsters, will fall at the kingdom of God. So the Bible has both, and it seems like both sides want only one. Yeah, I guess that's the real thing. If the critics of Russell Moore and David French and Christian Kobus Demay and all that, if they're saying, look, you shouldn't be punching right, and that's all they're saying, then I— don't agree. But if what they're saying is, look, it's good to punch right, mm -hmm. but we also need to punch left, then I think I agree. I think I'm going to agree with whoever ends up being on the side of we need to be able to faithfully critique both lovingly, in humility, speak the truth in love, to say hard things to both sides of this. Yes, I agree. We're on the punch both sides and maybe at times coddle both sides. <laughs> but isn't there that whole movement netter, no enemies to the right? 
Yes. Oh, and then there's also no enemies to the left. They took that from the left. I think it actually started in the left, the no oh, enemies did? to the left. This was like 20 years ago. This was when people on the left, they were telling each other, you can't critique Stalin, you can't critique Lenin. There's mm. no enemies to the left. And so it made this justification for not critiquing the you know gross, terrible, millions of deaths, abuses of the USSR. And then the right picked it up and made it their own thing in the modern day of no enemies to the right. It makes no sense to me because no. if you don't confront the enemies on your side, whether you're on the left or the right, if you don't confront the people you disagree with, then you can't distinguish yourself as something that is distinctly Christian and gospel-centered. Because there are people on the right and the left who are misguided and headed the wrong direction. We have to be able to speak the truth in love to both sides. Well, and we'll get into this when we start doing more observations. You have to wrestle with the fact that neither right nor left equals the church. So if you think I'm critiquing the church, if I critique the right, you've got problems. If you think you're critiquing the church because you're critiquing the left, which is not usually what people think, you've got problems. Let's finish up with Russell Moore here. He ends up calling his critics Hananias. So just a little bit of Bible background here. That's not a compliment, by the way. No, it's not. (laughs) After Babylon came to Judah for the first time, they took a group of exiles, including Daniel, to Babylon. And there was two different approaches. You had Jeremiah, who wrote a letter to the exiles saying, hey, cultivate Babylon and its welfare. You'll find your welfare. Build vineyards, build houses, give away your sons and daughters. It's very Genesis 1-y. Let's cultivate and make Babylon the best you can. And then there was another prophet who he was explicitly rejecting in his letter named Hananiah, who said, no, this exile is going to be temporary. It's time to rebel against Babylon. It's time to fight back because God's going to be with you. And this is what Russell Moore calls his opponents. They're Hananiahs. In other words, they're attacking the sins of Babylon while not dealing with the sins of Israel. And just so we're clear, Jeremiah was in the right in the situation in these chapters, and Hananiah was in the wrong. It turned out that this exile was going to be longer than people expected or wanted. And God didn't want his people to rebel against Babylon. And Hananiah is going to be short and rebel, and Jeremiah is saying, no, it's not. It's going to be a while. Pray for the welfare of Babylon. I'm going to read the end of Russell Moore's quote here. He said, Hananiah would have seemed a more loyal evangelical than Jeremiah. So you see what he's doing. I'm Jeremiah. My opponents are Hananiah. He punched Hananiah, punched at Nebuchadnezzar, and cheered up those who were on our side. And God said through Jeremiah, listen, Hananiah, the Lord has not sent you, yet you have persuaded this nation to trust in lies. That's Jeremiah 28, 15. In fact, Jeremiah said Hananiah's, quote, unity was, quote, rebellion against the Lord. So he's saying, if you're angry at me because you think I'm fracturing the church and I'm attacking the church and I'm fragmenting us, just remember there was someone else who begged for unity and his name was Hananiah. There was someone else who wanted to fight against the Babylon of his day and that was Hananiah and he was in the wrong. Here's my problem with all this is that you can pick stories in the Bible to frame it however you want. And so, I mean, I applaud this well-written by Russell Moore and interesting and provocative and all that. And there's some truth to it. Oh, absolutely. But (laughs) he's framed himself as Jeremiah and Hananiah as the bad guy and his enemies are Hananiah. But you could frame this a lot of different ways and make yourself the good guy and the other side the bad guy. But the reality is that he ignores in Jeremiah, the book of Jeremiah, that the last chapters of the book, Jeremiah goes hard after Babylon. Yeah, he tells people to flee Babylon, to resist Babylon. He talks about Babylon's fall, which is God's justice against Babylon. So So, in some sense, Jeremiah gets what we're saying is Jeremiah does does it both. both ways. He's willing to say the hard things to Israel, and he's willing to say the hard things to Babylon.
We'll get back to the episode in just a moment. But today, I want to invite you to become a partner with us through giving. If you enjoy this podcast and God is using it to change your heart and make you more like him, I hope that you will partner with us. If you've heard the stories of lives that have been changed, marriages that have been reconciled, church families that have been brought back together that were divided by political tribalism, and you want to hear more stories like that, again, I hope you'll partner with us by giving. Of course, I wish we could pull off a podcast without any cost, but running these things can be expensive, and your partnership in ministry with us goes a long way towards making Truth Over Tribe sustainable in the long term. If you want to give, click the link in our show notes, or you can go to choosetruthovertribe.com slash give. That's choosetruthovertribe.com slash give. I hope you'll partner with us in this gospel-centered ministry to glorify Jesus by fighting tribalism in our churches, in our communities, and in our families. We're going to move more into observations and just what we think is maybe a healthier path forward for Christians in this election year when I don't want to live through more divisiveness and anger. But before you do, I just want to underline this. Many of the people we're talking about, we consider these people friends. We've had them on the podcast, and I think that they have good motives, and I think all of them have really good points. And I could guess that some of them would listen to this and actually end up agreeing with us and saying, yeah, that's actually what I want. What I want is both punch right and punch left. So I just say to say, we're not trying to be overly critical of any of these individuals. There's truth in all of them. There's not one person we've mentioned on here that I dislike or disagree with always. I like all these people. I learn from all these people. You know, it's not like we're friends because I don't know them other than to have talked with them on the podcast. But I feel like they're ideological friends. They're Christian friends. They're spiritual friends. They've helped me a lot. And the thing that bums me out is they don't seem to figure out how to work together. Their ideas are compatible. It almost makes me wonder, is there something underneath going on? Like, do they not like each other for some other reason? Because surely we can be on the same team. But it's almost, if you watch Twitter at least, it's almost like you can't be on the same team with each other. It's almost like the algorithm is ginning something up inside of us to drive up engagement. All right, let's do some observations. This is my first one. And I realize we just did a whole podcast on this, and maybe I'm proving that I don't believe what I'm about to say. But this discourse is so tired. You mean the arguing back and forth? I'm just, I'm tired of it. I've heard the arguments 10 different times, 10 different ways by the exact same 10 people. And what I've realized is no one is convincing anyone. Both sides are preaching to the choir. If we're talking about what we're tired of on Twitter, how about the argument of Christian Twitter? I mean, how about the argument between egalitarians and complementarians? Oh, yeah. See, that's tired, too. That's tired, too. It feels like we're just saying the same thing over and over over again. And so it makes you ask the question, why are people doing this? Because these are all smart people. Why are they having the same conversation over and over again, making the same points? It almost makes you think, is there some incentive that I'm not aware of? Does it drive up their follower account? Does it signal that they're on a certain tribe or a certain team? I don't know. I think that you're probably right on the money. What I want to say is I don't think it's conscious. Yeah. I don't think many of us recognize how much dopamine we get when we tweet something and people start liking it, commenting it, retweeting it, or even fighting against it. We love engagement and we love attention. And it's clear that the social media algorithms have discovered that this topic gins up a ton of engagement. And so even if you're not consciously talking about it because you want the engagement, it's hard to work against your own brain because you have lots of internal incentives to push you that direction. And we've seen this all over the place. 
I mean, we talked about this with the Christianity Today thing a year ago, you know, but it's not a mistake that, you know, the year after the rise and fall of Mars Hill comes out, the amount of articles they have about abuse literally doubles. And I don't think anybody in the room said, hey, we're going to talk more about abuse inside the magazine. What happened? They made a lot of money on a podcast. It got a lot of positive attention and it was a really good podcast in a lot of ways. And so it's a shocker that you try to repeat your past phenoms. Yeah, without even intentionally doing it. What I feel like we need to do is like ceasefire. Okay, we've made our points, and I don't think you have anything additional to say that's really original. So let's call a ceasefire on this and move forward on something else and maybe even figure out how we can work together in some way. <laughs> I agree. If you think, if you take one of these sides, you say, that's my side, that means you think the other side is a fool. Right, whether it's Russell Moore saying Andrew Walker, you're a fool, or Andrew Walker saying Russell Moore, you're a fool. Didn't By the they way, teach they teach at the same seminary, <laughs> yeah. and I'm not saying they're saying this, but just remember what Proverbs says: Do not speak in the hearing of a fool, for he will despise the good sense of your words. There has to be a point at which, even if you think the other side is foolish, you realize repeating the same arguments is a waste of space, a waste of time, and you are only preaching to the choir. Another thing that you can't help but notice is that people make whatever their topic is the most important thing, the issue that we all need to immediately address. And I think of it kind of like the Gilligan's Island deal where, you know, Gilligan's Island, they got the hole in the boat and they're sitting on the island. And the professor is kind of the person who's most valuable because he figures out how to keep them alive on this island, right? And so he comes up with all these crazy inventions to save them from this or that. But what they never do on Gilligan's Island is they never just try to fix the hole in the boat so that they can go home. And I feel like that's what happens here sometimes is that there's the superficial problem or the presenting problem. Superficial is probably not right because, because they really are problems. But then there's the real ultimate problem, like the hole in the boat. That's the main problem. And I feel like a lot of times these arguments are about the kind of things that are problems, but people kind of make them bigger deal than they really are. They try to present them as the problem, the hole in the boat. Like if we could just fix this, everything would be okay. And I don't think that's probably wise or helpful. I totally agree with you. I think that both problems we've identified, the desire to coddle the left and the problem of Christian nationalism inside the church, I think they are both problems. I think they're both significant problems. I don't think that they are the problem with American democracy. I don't think they are the problem with evangelicalism for the single reason that there probably is not a the problem out there. Or at least we don't know what it is. Well, the larger and more global a problem or an issue is, the more complex it becomes. I mean, hmm. just think about the amount of people involved. Complexity always ramps up exponentially when there's more people involved. And everybody's from a different place of the country. They have a different experience, different kinds of Christian culture in all these places. So there's there's no chance that we're going to figure out the problem that transcends, unless we just say something like discipleship or loving God and loving your Sin. neighbor, right? <laughs> Sin, Sin you is know, the problem. that's the problem. Yeah. And so you're either going to end up with very simple but true answers like that. Sin is the problem. I'm fine with that. But the reality is you are not going to find a the problem. You're going to find many problems, and we need to have freedom to speak about them. It's important to remember, you, whoever's listening to this, the place where you are most likely to recognize the problem is when you are talking about very small scale, very localized issues. And by the way, that should encourage you because that's actually the place where you can make a difference. That's part of the problem here is we've got this global discourse that has no hope of changing any movements out there and we have neglected the local. So maybe our time would be better spent not dealing with this big global discourse that's naming everything as the problem and instead started focusing in our own communities where we actually have a hope of making change. You want to hear a verse that really should probably convict all of us. Here it is. Proverbs 16, 28. A perverse person stirs up conflict, 
and a gossip separates close friends. So here I think we're talking mainly about the first half of that. A perverse person stirs up conflict. I'm not impugning anyone's motives. If anyone, I'm impugning mine. I, I love say, a good I'm conflict. I'm tempted by this. I, want, I, I enjoy <laughs> I a having a good debate. Conflict. I want to be in conflict, and it's not a good thing. It's not a good part of my heart. Right, and I just think that some of the incentives cause people to want to argue and fight over stuff, and that's what probably damages our reputation in the watching world's eyes. And it might not, by the way, even be the people who are writing this stuff. It might very well be the people who are commenting on it, who are retweeting it, who are engaging with it on social media. Because if that stops, if people stop the comments, they stop the quote tweets, they stop the attacks, my guess is people stop talking about the stuff as much in general, which goes back to the incentives. Okay, let's go to our third observation. And I already made this, so I think we can make it rather quick. But I think that this discourse has been co-opted by the right versus left frame of reference in the United States. It's really easy for us to forget that the modern right versus left framework is a social construct. Now, that's not my way of saying it's not real because it's been enshrined in our political parties. It's been enshrined in our governance. But what I'm trying to get at here is that the kingdom of God predates the right versus left distinction and it supersedes it. The kingdom isn't right or left because it predates right and left. The kingdom is other than right or left. It's up and right and left, that's down. And the kingdom has its own set of ethics, its own institutional organization, its own vision of the common good, its own practice of common life, its own way of handling power. And above all, it has its own king who is already on the throne. The problem with a lot of this discourse is that it's driven in part by unspoken political allegiances. And I already said this earlier. Here's how it comes out. When someone says punch right, they equivocate that, which Russell more clearly does with punching the church. The church is not the right. <laughs> Does he say that? The church is the right? Or you're talking about that's just kind of an assumption? Well, he talks about punching right, and then he talks about judgment being in the house of God. Hmm. So he kind of does. I'm not saying he never explicitly equivocates, but I'm sitting here thinking, well, hold on. I know plenty of progressive churches that also need your critique, that if you want to call anybody who calls themselves the church the house of God, why don't they deserve it? No, that's interesting because inside the larger church, at least people who call themselves the church, we're not trying to make any judgments right now about it. There are people on the left and right who, if you're just starting with the household of God, that needs some firm critique. It's spoken truth and love, but some firm critique. But it seems like when people on a particular side, when they want to critique the church, they only critique the right, the conservative part of the church, not the other part. Yeah, and I think that's not just unhelpful, it's a misunderstanding of the kingdom of God because it is not right or left. And by the way, it goes the other direction too, because if you want to say we can't critique the right because we shouldn't be critiquing the church, you've made the exact same error. No, let's let judgment start with the house of God, which means critiquing both right and left because the kingdom of God supersedes right and left. So whenever I get in the middle of all this, one of the people I think of is Malcolm X. And oh, here's yeah. why. See if this makes sense to you. Is that when I was reading the autobiography of Malcolm X, which is by Alex Haley, which is, I don't know, it's a whole thing's kind of weird that it's an autobiography by another guy, but it's a fantastic story. Oh, it's so good. When I was reading it for the first time and learning more about Malcolm X's story, I started to understand a little bit more of how he ended up where he did. Because I was never a person that was a fan of Malcolm X. I always thought he was this crazy extremist. But then you read his story and you're like, well, I don't know that I agree with him, but I understand how you get to where he did eventually in life. If I had his experiences, and you probably read it more recently than me, but it's pretty brutal the way his family was treated and they had to leave their house and all this stuff because they were under threats of violence and on and on and on. Well, if I then put myself in a position of a Russell Moore or a Beth Moore, 
or somebody like that, or a David French whose family was attacked for adopting a black girl. I understand how they ended up wanting to push back against maybe Christians who are trying to hide sexual abuse, at least that's the way they see it, or who are trying to make excuses for racist attacks. I understand why Beth Moore ends up wanting to lead the Southern Baptist Convention, because there is this group, probably a small group in my opinion, but what do I know, of Southern Baptist pastors who just made her life miserable. I'd want to leave too. But then if I go over on the other side and I look at it from a Josh Howerton or an Andrew Walker or whatever, they've got a different set of experiences that have shaped why they've come to their views. And so it makes me appreciate both of them more, both sides more, when I understand that their experiences have been really different. And And it makes me go, okay, I don't necessarily know I agree with them, but I understand how they got there. And if I'd been in that same situation, maybe I'd be where Russell Moore, David French, or Beth Moore, or Tim Alberta ends up. I thought you were going to go a different direction with Malcolm X and what you did, but I totally agree with you. We forget that people have stories and that's going to shape their responses. There's the other thing I like about Malcolm X. He punched both ways. Mm. It was one of the most striking things about his book. He called conservatives wolves and liberals foxes, by which he meant he knew the conservative wanted to kill him, but the liberal was the fox who pretended he didn't want to kill him, but when his back was turned, he was going to try to kill him. (laughs) That was just his little metaphor that he had for both parties. Is that like Martin Luther King Jr. who talked about some of the greatest enemies to his movement, the civil rights movement, were liberal whites who wouldn't kind of speak up, right? Yeah, Malcolm X said the white liberal is able to use the black man as a pawn for a tool in his political football game that is constantly raging between the white liberals and the white conservatives. Politically, the black community is nothing more than a football, and the white liberals control this mentally dead ball through tricks of tokenism. He goes on, but he's very critical of both sides, just to be clear. But that's kind of what we're arguing, is that if Mm. we want to have a truly prophetic voice in our culture and represent present the kingdom of God well. We have to both love both sides, so maybe there's some coddling for both sides, and we have to critique both sides. But I would say this, in Matthew 9, Jesus talks about having compassion on people, lost people. And I think you can have compassion. You must have compassion on people who are lost on the right and the left, conservatives and liberals, people in the rural part of the world and people who live in cities, different races. If you don't have a sense of compassion on people, it's hard to kind of love them, understand where they're coming from, and want to share Christ with them. But I feel like we've somehow said there are certain people that we are going to hate and demonize other eyes. And I just think that goes against Jesus's model. Just remember, if you're going to punch right, Ruth Graham article in New York Times recently talking about Ryan Burge's research showing that a huge amount of MAGA supporters aren't really Orthodox Christians. They call themselves evangelical. It's kind of one of the words that's changed meaning. But she makes a great point that a lot of evangelicals, people who identify as evangelicals, don't even go to church. They used to go to church, but they drifted away from church years and years ago. And they're the ones who are the most rabid Trump supporters. So when you're criticizing evangelicals in support of Trump, you might be criticizing people who don't know Jesus, who don't know Jesus, who don't go to church. They're Babylon. (laughs) But they do call themselves evangelicals, which is why it's so confusing. It is confusing, but it's just a fact. Ruth Graham, best religion reporter in America. Amen to that. Here's the big deal. Proverbs 2010 says, unequal weights and unequal measures are both alike an abomination to the Lord. I think so often in this argument, you have people arguing for unequal weights and unequal measures. I want to treat the right differently than I treat the left, or I want to treat the church differently than I treat the outside. 
there might be a case for that, but here's the bigger picture. The kingdom is truly not right or left. It is up from that. It is diagonal to that. It is other than that. We've been called to serve a king who has a kingdom, and it does not neatly fit into either group, nor should we allow the terms of both groups to set our arguments. If we're talking about punching right and coddling left, I almost think we've already missed the boat. Let's not let our partisan allegiances calibrate our response to what's happening politically in our culture. If we let go of this argument, in other words, just say we're going to agree to disagree a little bit. We're all open to change. We're all open to maybe modifying our views, learning from the other side. But let's move on. Maybe one thing we could move on to is something that we are for, that we can all support and get behind to have a positive witness in the world. Because it turns out that the world is watching us. And it takes us all the way back to Francis Schaeffer, who told us that the mark of a Christian should be love, not division, but love, like we love one another. Or in John 17, it talks about the unity of the believers is a sign that the Father sent the Son. And when we're arguing and fighting in social media circles, I just wonder if it causes people to doubt whether we really love one another, if it causes people to doubt whether the gospel is true. Francis Schaeffer said, the church is to be a loving church in a dying culture. How then is the dying culture going to consider us? Jesus says, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. In the midst of the world, in the midst of our present dying culture, Jesus is giving a right to the world. Upon his authority, he gives the world the right to judge whether you and I are born-again Christians on the basis of our observable love toward all Christians. That's Francis Schaeffer saying, look, guys, if you don't love one another, then Jesus tells the world that they are right to doubt whether Christianity is true. Now, they'll be wrong because Christianity is still true whether or not we love one another, but it at least gives them the right to question it. This is the means by which Jesus has said the world will or will not know us, how we treat each other, how we love one another. And I know this won't happen, so maybe I'm being too hopeless, but can you imagine a world where Christians were the singular group in American politics? Because we're going to have an incredible tribal year. It's going to be a year where people are saying terrible things about one another, where they're going to be attacking one another, where they're going to be threatening one another. What if the church was the one place where people on the right and left said, you know what? This stuff matters. It really does matter. But it is not ultimate because I worship the king of heaven. He doesn't need a spot in the Oval Office. That would be a downgrade. Peter says that anyone who serves Jesus Christ, and this is how he describes Jesus, he says, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. If Christians could just remember for a moment that we worship a king literally over everything, wouldn't that free us to be more gracious to one another? to go across party lines and say, these aren't the most important things that separate us. And if we did that, if we showed love to one another when the rest of the world was showing each other hate, I actually think that would be something that would convince people of the truth of the gospel. The same way that Jews and Gentiles getting along in the ancient world convinced ancient Romans that yes, there's something true happening in Jesus. Thanks for listening. If you found this podcast helpful, make sure to subscribe and leave a review. And make sure it's at least five stars. Stop. No, just be honest. Reviews help other people find us. (laughs) Okay, okay. At the very least, you can share today's episode. Maybe put it on your social, your favorite text chain. And if you didn't like this episode, awesome. Tell us why you disagree on Twitter, at truthovertribe underscore. We might even share your thoughts in an upcoming newsletter.